What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. You're listening to Intelligence Squared. Today we're hearing from David Spiegelhalter, the statistician, academic and newspaper columnist based at Cambridge University, whose grasp of big numbers earned him a knighthood for his services to statistics in 2014. Virologist and host of the Naked Scientist podcast, Dr. Chris Smith, speaks to David on the show today about his new book, Analyzing the COVID-19 Pandemic. Here's Chris with more. COVID has, of course, reshaped the world and all of our lives. Each day, fresh studies and new numbers come along that give us new perspective on the virus. Making sense of that constantly shifting mountain of data, though, can be a big challenge. So who better? than David Spiegelhalter, the renowned statistician and expert on risk and uncertainty, to tell us what those figures really mean. David's new book, COVID by Numbers, written with Anthony Masters, seeks to do just that. It's also pertinent that, actually, as we welcome David to the programme, it marks the publication of a report that scrutinises how the UK government has handled the COVID pandemic crisis and also the rise to prominence of the now famous phrase, we are following the science. So, David, have we have we followed the science? Um, I hope not. No, the, <laughs> I don't like that phrase at all. You know, it was used a lot at the beginning of the lockdown. You know, and th- this report, um, you know, that came out today from the select committee, sort of, sort of suggests that at the beginning there was a kind of unity between the, what the politicians and the scientists were saying. But you know, science doesn't tell us what to do it never can and so this following the science seems like an attempt to uh, shift responsibility onto the scientists and they should i think refuse to take that on i mean that that was the case many scientists did begin to object because they said this is coming across as political ass covering and and we do not want to be associated with policy science isn't policy well i completely agree um you could say that to quite a few scientists who have continued to say what we should be doing now at the time you know there were scientists arguing against the government you know what was being they were going on the media they were on social media saying we should be acting earlier and so on and they turned out to be it looks like it right um i wasn't one of them at all um you know i I think i misjudged the whole thing but uh and so i'm glad i wasn't recommending policy because actually it's not my job and it's not really it's not a job of any single scientist working in a single area even public health people but that's a very bold admission you just made that you said i misjudged it i mean if you can misjudge it anyone can misjudge it in what way did you get it wrong then Oh, I was. I'm. Oh, I'm. 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 My my personality makes me, you know, completely 
unable or you know, inappropriate that I should advise people what to do. I'm, I'm a chronic optimist. I underestimate uh, what might go wrong. I assume everything's going to be okay. And so, I, and I know that about myself. And so I keep my gob shut when it comes to things like this, because I, I actually wrote down what I thought might be the impact of the virus. And as of my own little private bet, I put probabilities on the total number of deaths during the year. I can't remember exactly, but I thought, you know, there was a low probability it'd be more than 20,000 or even 15,000 or something like that. So um, I was I was hopelessly wrong. And um, so I'm glad I shut up. But I, uh, but, you know, I, in a way... <laughs> There is this issue of how much scientists should be um, advising. And I think everyone should listen to science when they're making any policy. I think science is incredibly important. To ignore it is is absolutely nonsensical. But in the end, the scientists are not those responsible for these decisions. Um, Any decision made about policy is a political decision that takes into account much wider perspectives than just the scientific viewpoint. Um, You know, I studied decision theory, and as soon as you get into decision theory, you know that, you know, one part of it, of course, is probabilities and what possibilities of what might happen and so on. But then the other part of it is what is the value of these consequences in, this, in, the, in the absolute broader sense? And I don't think scientists, that's not what we do. So uh, I, I really believe in science. I believe in it being very important. But uh, And I could say what, what I do believe that scientists should, science should do is to um, look at the possibilities in a very imaginative way of what the options are. Um, it should look at the possible consequences in a way but those are always limited essentially to things we can measure or try to measure and then it should give an idea of what might happen if we do certain things the winners and losers the benefits and harms and that's of course covered with enormous uncertainty and then in the end they have to present that to the people who have to make the decisions with warnings about the the worst things that could happen and so on and so I I made this analogy that instead of following the science science isn't out there in front saying come on this way and telling us what to do, it's it's sort of walking beside the decision makers, sort of muttering to itself, you know, probably bickering amongst itself and suggesting what might happen if you go in various directions. That's the whole issue of modelling, isn't it? Because that has been the thing that has dominated this pandemic, apart from the fact that we've injected into the national vocabulary all kinds of jargon and buzzwords like our value and yeah. herd immunity. The word model has probably featured up there more than almost any other when considering what we should do and what might happen in the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm not a modeler at all. And I I think they can be valuable. I think that, uh, like I think some people have suggested, they could possibly have played far too big a role in, in, uh, in the whole discourse. Everyone's obsessed about them. But in fact... Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not convinced, given the enormous uncertainties and how, you know, the models come up with a huge range of, of possibilities, you know, because they're dependent on, first of all, what we don't know about the, the virus. And, and crucially, they're dependent on what we don't know about how people will behave. And so the uncertainties are so huge that they really just give a feeling of how things could be really awful or they might not be that bad. And that's almost it. So why has the government taken them so seriously i'm not sure if they 
the extent to which they have. They have been very useful. The stuff that comes out of SPYM is is great. It shows the sort of range of possibilities and some sort of central values, but they've got things wrong. All the teams have, or at least mostly most of the stuff that's come out at various times. Um, Chris Whitty has, has sort of said that, you know, he actually much prefers looking at what's happening and what, you know, the short-term consequences might be. Um, and when something like in, like in last March is doubling away every few days, you don't have to have a very complex model. In fact, you know, we, we don't know what's going to happen. We do know it's going to get really bad and, uh, and something should be done. Uh, so, uh, you know, I don't want to get in a big argument between statisticians and modelers, whatever, but uh, I'm, I, and I think modelers can be useful, but uh, I, and I'm not sure. I mean, the, the, the parliamentary report does say that uh, they think that too much notice was taken of models. And I suppose I've got a bit of sympathy with that. The thing I was quite surprised by was to see things like R values being described in the figures that are given out to the public and, and the fact that they, they actually started using this sort of maths and stats and modelling speak. And the thing I really liked about the new book you've just published is the fact you take everybody through each of these sections and you explain what a lot of this thing that, that will now be quite familiar parlance to people, what it is, what it, what it does, what it means and where it comes from. But let's touch on, on R for a minute because that mm. surfaced pretty quickly didn't it? Right at the beginning of all of this, we started to hear about the R value for this. So to orientate people, what actually is R and how does R for COVID compare with R for, say, flu? Yeah, no, I think R has been incredibly valuable as a single summary, you know, one number that people could grab hold of and which does, you know, roughly reflect what's going on in the community. So I think it has been very valuable. Um, I mean, it's it's a gross simplification. I mean, it's, it's sort of average over a whole um, group of people about in a, you know, how many people anyone who's got an infection would be expected to infect. And so the basic reproduction number, what's called R0, is if you, you, a virus hits a completely virgin population in which nobody's really taking any any precautions. Um, and so how, how, how many people is expected to infect? And for... Um, I mean, they get the uh, estimates. They got their. I mean, some, there's some really excellent work done by the, uh, for example, the Imperial Group and others in estimating R very early on from the data that was available, and also estimating the infection fatality rate, which is again very, very nice work that um, that appeared in actually in their March the 16th report. Um, and you know, R sort of roughly three for um, you know, for the the wild sort of the first sort of virus the, the the, the sort of COVID, you know, SARS-CoV-2 version one. Um, and uh, and that's considerably more than flu, which, oh, come on, Chris, you must be, well, is flu what, about 1.6 or something like that? The, um, the numbers I've seen are about 1.3. Yeah, so flu isn't very much at all. You know, every person is likely to affect one and maybe two people on average. It's sort of, it's not big at all. But as soon as people start taking precautions or a lot of people start getting immunity, then our drops. And it's a nice summary because it gives a sort of tilt and balance. You say a balancing point. If ours is less than one, it means that the epidemic is essentially shrinking. If it's greater than one, it's, it's, it's increasing. And so, uh, I mean, it is a big... Uh, it's an average in so many ways 
um, because it's an average over uh, you know whole areas of the country, although they have tried to estimate it in, in more specific areas. But it's also an average in terms of the number of people that someone infects. But it's a, it's an average of a, what is actually a hugely skewed distribution. I mean, right, right from the early on, it was concluded that most people didn't infect anybody at all. You know, eighty percent of infections are. are, are um, you know, are provoked or transmitted by only ten percent of the population. Oh, so, I was surprised when I when I actually saw that statistic because mm. that was data from India as well, wasn't it? There was a very powerful paper from from India published in a, a top journal where they actually showed this very dramatic spread Huge, originating from yeah a tiny number of people. Well, yeah. Why do we think that ju- happens I'm, then? You're, you're you're the virologist. You can tell me. I don't know. No, I mean uh, the um, you know it just means that. And this is why you know, I got multiple examples of where quoting an average can, in fact, give a very wrong impression. When you've got a, a hugely skewed distribution, where actually the most likely value is zero, but then there's you know reasonable chance of infecting quite a lot of people. And, of course, then we get up to these super spreader events in choirs and things like that, when somebody might infect 50 people. So, I mean, those are, those are also very rare, I think. But the point is that very few people actually infect three people <laughs> with, with this virus. It's either um, more or, or, or you know, substantially less. And so um, it, it, that can be a bit misleading. But it's a useful figure. But the other thing about R is we can't just go and see it. We can't measure it. Uh, if we're looking at the number of people infected in serious, in, in principle, we can do surveys and we can actually find that out. We can't go out and measure R. It's very much a virtual quantity that we can only infer from looking at how many people are getting infected and and sort of working backwards from a model that we've got. Of course, the other thing that became subsequently toxic, unfortunately, during the coverage of the pandemic was this phrase herd immunity, which is a very sound epidemiological and, and vaccine related piece of terminology, isn't it? But R can tell us something about that, can't it? Because it, it can tell us roughly what proportion of the population we need to get immune in order for the thing to stop spreading. Yeah, again, you know, it's really the really sort of simple stuff that if, um, you know, if a virus is going to, on average, infect three people, um, if, you know, in a virgin population, and if actually two out of those three people were actually immune, then we'd only infect one and the, then the epidemic wouldn't grow. And so that means... You know, if R is three, you want two thirds of the population to be immune. So what you're actually doing is one minus one over R naught. That's one minus a third in that case. Um, to would uh, you know would stop the the epidemic growing and. That's great as a simple calculation, but it, you know it's not a description of what's going on, particularly because the huge variation in the actual number of people that someone infects that are as only an average, um, but also you know the, it, it requires people to be completely immune and. You know, if I, I could be vaxxed to the eyeballs, I'm not immune. You know, we found that, that there's breakthrough infections a lot. You know, vaccination just doesn't stop you getting the virus again. And so it, I, I think, yeah, herd immunity has got such a toxic phrase 
But, you know, the idea of a substantial pool of immunity in the population is, of course, incredibly important. That's why, um, at the moment, we're just, this country is hovering along at a sort of, you know, fairly level, um, but high level of infections, because there's so much immunity in the population. So are we, do you think, moving away from the idea that we can actually achieve herd immunity through vaccination because we just can't stop it because the vaccines are leaky? and and therefore. We, we have to change our thinking. Yeah, you could never get to herd immunity, I don't think. But, you know, basically, with the, with the Delta variant, R's gone up to about seven. So if we use that simple calculation, it would require six-sevenths of the population to be completely immune. And what's six-sevenths? What's that? Um, about 86% or something like that. Yeah, but even if you're vaxxed to the absolute gunnels, you're not 86% immune against infection. So where does that leave us then with, with interventions like Nicola Sturgeon, Mark Drakeford saying we're going to have vaccine passports to come to nightclubs? Because presumably then that's like saying we're putting this sticking plaster over the door, but it's a breathable sticking no, plaster. No, no, it's got no, holes no. in it. No, it's, it's always, everything's got holes in it. This is all to do with risk reduction. It's not to do with eliminating the risk completely of these things. Um, in Italy, you can't buy a cup of coffee in a shop without um, having a double, being double vaxxed. So, and it's not saying that's going to eliminate everything. I mean, I think it's one of the, I think is people have got that now. The vaccines are not perfect. The tests are not perfect uh, and so on. And that, um, you know, the whole issue of false positives, of breakthrough cases and things, that this has permeated, you know, popular thinking and, and even political thinking, I think. They've finally got into people's heads. that, And, and so, in a way, this is enormous progress because, um, you know, statisticians have been going on for ages about we've got to think about sensitive, well, you know, how accurate tests are. They're not perfect at all. They can never be sure. And so on. Always the residual uncertainty, having done something or got some result. Um, we're always going on about the fact that, ah, yeah, but there's still a chance that. And that now, I think, has really penetrated and certainly into the media and so on. And so, you know, people, the level of discussion has definitely got more sophisticated. There definitely seems to have been an acceptance where previously for a long time the messaging coming from certainly certain quarters was we should pursue a zero covid strategy we should aim for this to be zero eliminate this from at least our geography we should follow the example of australia follow the example of new zealand that seems to have switched the feeling i get is that now people have accepted that actually we agree that that's probably not going to be possible based on what we've learned about the agent and probably we have to pursue one of of mitigation of the impact but accept that this thing's here to stay at least for a while yeah i think everyone's accepted that now even the people who previously would be arguing for a zero covid elimination strategy because that doesn't mean to say that you know back in march last year 2020 it might not have been better to try to do this. I'm not going to get into all of that, whether we should have tried to be like Australia and New Zealand, because just because that maybe not be feasible as a long-term strategy doesn't mean that the countries that tried to do that were wrong to even try it last year. Um, there's a lot to do with 
you know, uh, I don't know, buying time. I think, especially when you, when you think there might be a vaccine in in, in the offing. I mean, we, we've yet to see now Australia, and New Zealand, got to, and other countries got to deal with of, of shifting away from that strategy, which is, brings its own huge problems. So we, it's going to be very interesting to watch what happens there. But crucially, you know, a lot of these things are buying time to set up services and to and for the vaccines to be developed. I mean, you know. <laughs> I th- I, my understanding is that the scientists back last March, February and March, were arguing against border controls because they wouldn't stop it. Yeah, but that's not quite the point. Uh, I think it, it, nothing's going to would have stopped it. I don't think completely at that point, and, and we certainly can't stop it now. But that doesn't mean that delaying it at, at the early stages would not have been a good thing because of just buying time to get the health services sorted, to work out what you're going to do. And, and you know, the, it just makes the vaccine that bit closer before it comes. The other thing you devote quite a few column inches to in your writing, and, and I'm glad you did because you make it very clear in, in the book, is about testing and how tests perform. Because this is very much something that's a black box for most people. You do a swab, you get a result. I believe it, black and white, simple. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, it's it's, I think, also becoming very clear that not all tests are made equal and mm-hmm. tests have different performances and different pickup rates and, uh, and and that can be very hard for, i think people to to understand oh. in the first instance you know what what is a false positive what is yeah. a false negative what's the gold standard here what's the difference between the performance of a pcr test and a lateral flow test and when should we use one when should we use another Oh, and that's just the start. It gets it gets far more difficult than that. <laughs> that's the easy bit. That, I mean, the difficult bit is that you know how you interpret a test depends crucially on why you did the test and what's going on in the community in which you're testing people. I mean, this is just the most difficult and unintuitive area. It's disaster. Even the language is un, is is unintuitive and ambiguous. What does false positive rate mean? I can think of three definitions. Well, I, I think sensitivity use. and specificity is very very hard to get your head around actually most people would say do you know i haven't got a clue but at least they could learn what it meant whereas if you ask people what is the false negative rate uh, it's an ambiguous term it hasn't got a, a fixed definition you know uh, false negative rate is it okay it's it's false negatives but as a proportion of what as a proportion of everybody who hasn't got the disease or as a portion proportion of all the negative tests it's not clear at all so sensitivity and specificity it's not jargon these are terms that just make it clear what you're talking about. Um, however, it, it, it sounds like jargon. It sounds, oh, nobody knows what that means. So we're left with using terms like false positive and false negative rate, and yet trying to always define them so that people know what they are, because everyone gets them mixed up, and nobody knows what they really mean, and the whole thing's a shambles. So, and, you know, it's not many people have done their best to try to explain it. But as I said, the most difficult thing is the fact that you can have a test, you know, like lateral flows, you know, or any diagnostic test, when, when there's very little virus floating around, the positive, the problem is false positives. And when there's lots of virus floating around, the problem becomes false negatives. So that it, it, it's... I, and there we go, which is what we're seeing at the moment, because there's lots of virus at the moment. And so the issue is, I mean, one of the controversial issues at the moment is how often, you know, kids might do a lateral flow test and it comes out positive, And then they check it with the PCR. The PCR comes up negative and they think, oh, well, that's OK then. Well, no, it's not OK, actually. A very large number 
um, you know, that, that does not mean you haven't got the virus at all. If you're in a situation where there's a lot of virus around and you get a positive lateral flow, there's the false, the, it's very rare to get a false positive lateral flow. So well, it's about one in a thousand, isn't it? Yeah, something like that. So, you know, if you haven't got it, the chance is being positive. And so if there's a, also a lot of virus circulating and you get a positive lateral flow, it's a very high chance you've actually got, got an infection. But PCRs, they are not perfect at picking up infections. So it's quite possible you can have a false negative PCR because it, the swab may be done badly or whatever. And so actually the, you can have a positive lateral flow and then a negative PCR and there's still a reasonable chance um, that you have got the virus. It does not rule out you having the virus. Although, you know, people in general say, oh, the PCR is better than the lateral flow. Yeah, but not when used in this context. It doesn't reverse the lateral flow. So, I mean, these are really tricky issues and as a deeply unintuitive. People struggle with them. And, and because it, in the summer, when there's very little virus around, it would be, it would be completely different. Then, I'd, I, you know, the false positives become the problem because, um, you know, it's, it's so likely that people haven't got the virus. We take it to the logical extreme. If you had a country with no coronavirus in it, and you did lateral flow tests on people and say there's a thousand people in that country, one of them's going to have coronavirus, even though they haven't, because the test picks up one in a thousand as a false positive. Yeah, yeah, I quite quite possibly. Yes, yeah. I mean, that's sort of the situation, um, you know, when they were doing, uh, Office for National Statistics were doing their surveys in the summer when there was, you know, uh, 2020, there's very little virus around. And yet they were getting positives, uh, but they were getting a few positives. And it's quite plausible that all of those were false positives. <laughs> but it did put a sort of upper bound on what the false positive rate was for the PCRs. And so that was extremely useful because people were claiming that, oh, the PCRs got a massive false positive positive rate. The other thing which has been really, really hard from a statistical slash epidemiological perspective has been gathering morbidity and mortality statistics. Because I remember Maggie de Bloch, who was the Belgian health minister at the time, she very presciently said no one in the EU counts COVID the same. And the point mm. she was trying to make is that all these data that are being presented and people are trying to make comparisons between countries and effectively we ended up doing sort of apples with oranges comparisons because our numbers and our data were not the same as, as other countries. Has that been sorted out? They're all making, they're all still collecting it in odd ways. Now you can understand why someone in Belgium would say that because Belgium had a, was always... Well, they were top of the pile, weren't they? Well, they're always top of the pile because they counted probable cases as COVID even without confirmation. We should have moved so, to Russia where Vladimir Putin had a mysteriously low... And Turkmenistan, where there's not been any cases so far, apparently. So uh, it it all depends on... So the idea of comparing countries by how many reported COVID cases they've got has... It still happens. um, And it may be not too bad um, when you're comparing western countries who've got broadly similar attitudes but people have given that up as a way basic way of basic of comparing countries and uh, and of course uh, sorry I, I was thinking um these are covid uh, covid deaths that's where belgium was always heading the the league table because they were very liberal about labeling something as a as a death with covid um and other countries of course have no covid deaths according to their registrations and other countries some countries don't even know how many deaths there have been known you know 
in any case. So, um, it, it, so it's generally moved, if you're comparing countries to compare mortality, to use excess deaths, just to look at, um, you know, to coin a statistical phrase, to count the bodies, you know, regardless of what anyone has said um, they died of. And that eliminates all that arbitrariness. It still, still assumes a good death registration system, which isn't necessarily the case in some places. But then you get a very different view and some countries come out very badly indeed, particularly increasingly looking like countries in Central and South America have had extremely high ex Peru and other Bolivia and others, extremely high death rates compared with normal. And whether they were called COVID or not is actually irrelevant. And in our country, in Britain, UK, um, we've either, if you look at COVID, even COVID death registrations, which are generally considered pretty gold standard, they were still an undercount in the first wave because there was a big excess in non-COVID deaths in the first wave, it is particularly in care homes. And these were people, old people who died, and they almost certainly died of COVID, but they weren't seen by the GP to do the death certification because special rules came out. They didn't have to be seen by a doctor and they weren't tested because nobody was being tested in that the early part of the first wave. And so even our death registrations have undercounted COVID deaths. And hence, that's why Chris Whitty at one of those early Downing Street press briefings said, we have to wait for the end of the year. And do an excess death analysis. He said that very early on and then Office for National Statistics then did it and we, we spent quite a lot of time in the book uh, talking about their findings which were after the first wave and then in this sort of ghastly league table uh, Britain was the worst in Europe just about and uh, apart from some small places and so um, they uh, you know we did really badly in the first wave and you know we talk about that because if you go down through areas and even cities, you can see why. Because, you know, Madrid was really badly hit and other, and uh, around Milan, in, in, in North Italy, really badly hit. But it was, it was more, in other countries, it was much more focused. There's some areas that got away quite lightly. Whereas in the UK, okay, maybe the southwest got away quite lightly. But generally, um, you know, it was all over the place. We, we were hit. Uh, the entire country was hit by an eruption of the epidemic. And we also know why. We cover this quite a lot in the book. The excellent paper which followed sort of genomic sequences and found you know, more than a thousand different genomic sequences for the virus, which were as a separate you know, outbreaks. There were over a thousand separate outbreaks in this country from people bringing it back, not from China, it was from France, Spain and Italy in early March mainly, and um, and just bring it back from their holidays and woof, off it went. So this the, the epidemic erupted across the entire country pretty well because we are a nation of enormous travellers. It's quite staggering how much we travel. We've also got one of the world's busiest airports perched right on top of one of the world's busiest cities that moves more than the population of a small European country under its streets every day. Oh yeah, so London did badly but in fact, as I said, it was, it was all over the country. It, it, they erupted all over the place and so um, we got off to a terrible start, um, you know, really very difficult to control. Um, you know, again, in retrospect, people might say that we might have controlled our borders a bit better. Um, but uh, again, I'm, I'm not going to say that. But to what extent, David, does that sort of take into account a sort of robbing Peter to pay Paul idea in the sense that 
if we if we die now, I'm not here to die tomorrow. And it sounds macabre and a bit unpleasant mm-hmm. to think in those terms. Mm-hmm. But 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 statisticians and epidemiologists talk about this whole idea of harvesting, don't they? When mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. comes along and it wipes mm-hmm. out a bunch of people, robbing them for for mm-hmm. from the next threat, so they can't mm-hmm. die then. So to what extent will there be a payback for other countries? We've paid already. We've paid up front. Uh, we've paid our dues. Other countries will catch us up. Yeah, it, it, to some extent that might happen. Except if they, if they, other countries have now overtaken us with their vaccination programs, and so they they are preventing that happening. And uh, of course, Australia and New Zealand they're not going to they're not going to experience anything like what we experienced um, before the vaccine. Um, this idea of uh, a better phrase, a more, a, a, <laughs> harvesting does say is a pretty rough phrase. So I think mortality displacement is, is uh, I think, a better better term to use, although I use harvesting as well. Um, and it happens, of course, we, you know, in cold winters, uh, you know, where the death rates will go up and that's bringing forwards people's the vulnerable deaths that may have happened, you know, over the next year anyway. And that, that, this is quite a contentious subject and that it was claimed in the first wave that many I, I said I think many of the people would have died will have died uh, you know fairly soon anyway other people were you know were saying more you know maybe half people would have died Boris Johnson got himself in trouble because he said catch covid live longer because he pointed to the fact the average age of a covid victim at death was 82 and the average age yeah. of life expectancy in the UK was 80 yeah, yeah. Well, this is this is complete nonsense, of course, but absolute bollocks. So, uh, yeah, I mean, the the point is that, roughly speaking, the average age of dying from COVID is the average age of dying from other things, um, and that's because, and this is an interesting statistical issue. What COVID does is take any risk that you've got at the moment and multiply it. It exaggerates any vulnerability you've got. We say in the book, the virus is a bully. It takes any weakness and exaggerates it. And what that means, if everyone's risk is raised roughly by the same amount, it means that the actual distribution of the ages at death doesn't change at all. But it the whole thing goes up. There's more people dying. <laughs> They're dying at the same ages as they did, but there's just more of them. And so this has been quite a difficult thing to explain. Um, but and it, what it does mean, of course, is that, yeah, the, the risk, where you say in the book, the risk in the first wave for over 90s was 35,000 times the risks faced, not if you caught it, but just, you know, from healthy over 90s, at 35,000 times the risk of dying from COVID than school kids. Um, it was just amazing difference by age. Now, a number of those, a reasonable proportion, some of those older people would have died anyway over the next year. I, I, I was quoted last May, you know, May 2020, I think slightly off the top of my head as saying between 5 and 15%. I still think that's not a bad figure because net people have done models because we don't know if someone dies, how long they would have died, you know, when they would have died anyway. In other words, that's sort of counterfactual. All we can do is estimate the years of life lost from um, victims of COVID. And when you look at the distribution, it's just like the R distribution for the number of people infected. It's hugely skewed. And that the most likely, um, the most common length of time lost is less than a year. You know, actually, that is the most common. So all these vulnerable people who died, uh, there's a certain proportion who would have died in the next year. And that's the most common one. But then you've got a long tail that goes out to some people who've lost 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. And the average comes out at about 10 years of life lost, even though the most common value is less than a year. So it's unless you draw the distribution, it's yet another example of where an average can be misleading. Um, 
you want to see what the spread is and what that shape of that distribution is. What about the other point that Chris Whitty, Chief Medical Officer, made very poignantly right at the beginning of all of this when he said there will be direct deaths caused by coronavirus. There will be indirect deaths where people die because of but not from coronavirus. Have we got yet a, a kind of grip on how big that clinical iceberg is that we've created of people we haven't treated, people who haven't gone to the doctor, people who've got knock-on consequences, the hit to education and the disruption to the education of young people that will, will affect lifelong earnings, for example. Have we got some kind of idea yet what the lifelong health impact of that's going to be? People have tried to estimate it. And again, in our book, we spend quite a long time talking about the collateral effects of lockdown. What Chris Whitty didn't mention, let's look on the bright side, is there will be lives saved because of the pandemic, because of the lockdown measures. Uh, there was no flu last year. So that it could be between ten and 20,000 lives saved from that. Road accidents went down. We, we mentioned in the book that over 2020, uh, the pandemic was a net lifesaver for young people. People between aged 15 and 29, 300 fewer died than we would have expected to die. And, and actually, more than 100 did die of COVID. So that means maybe 400 fewer deaths from other causes. Um, and that would include road accidents and violence and other you know things that were prevented by young people essentially being locked up but if you've sown the seeds of mental illness and depression in those people by cooping them up that that's a lifelong legacy that's uh, we're very careful to say that it doesn't mean that the lockdowns were a good thing because of the the, because we know and because we've got measures of that the increase in in loneliness and depressive symptoms and so on now but as you say can we do we know what that is uh very difficult to measure it's there we haven't yet seen uh, an impact for example on cancer deaths uh but we wouldn't i don't think expect to start seeing that yet because of the delays in diagnosis and treatment um this is going to have a very long tail in terms of its of its impact um and people will be analyzing this you know forever it's going to be very difficult to separate out from all the other things that are going on going to be going on in the future including circulating covid so um we're going to have to make some inferences about that. People have been trying to estimate it. I think probably maybe the general feeling is that so far it might not look quite as bad as people are worried about, but that we're in early days yet. Uh, David, why did you write this? Oh, well, I mean, it grew out of the fact that Anti Masters and I had been writing a column in The Observer. Amazing. A weekly stats column. We've done nearly 40 of these now. Started last January. And um, and so we worked together well. And so we said, oh, let's try to write a book. About, and it's basically trying to explain about the numbers. It's not trying to judge everybody. It's not blaming or whatever. It's, trying to, it's not advocating changes in policy or saying what was done was wrong, although we, we do point out some stuff. Um, it's basically trying to do that, um, you know, <laughs> trying to help you through the people through the morass of numbers we've been bombarded with, and and of course when we tried to write it, we realised, oh my God, there's so many, right? From of course the R, but you know, right through to vaccine effectiveness, what does that mean, and so on. So we just try to explain all the stuff that everyone's been bombarded with over the last year and a half. 
I, I wanted to talk to you to finish about the sort of end game where this does end up. What would be your prediction then in terms of, of what's going to happen in the next few years? I refuse to engage with such a... But you don't, because you, you've actually devoted, you've devoted a page at the end of the book specifically to saying these are the no, scenarios, these I could know. be the outcomes. So you, you do engage sometimes, David. That's You're very true. cheeky That's to say true. that. I shouldn't say that, I know. But I, I certainly won't make a prediction. No, um, there are all sorts of scenarios that can play out depending on you know how optimistic or how pessimistic you are, and it depends what horizon you're talking about. You know, just over but just over this winter, well, who knows? You know, it depends on the terrain, on the weather. It'll depend on the um, you know, what sort of flu is circulating. What's going to happen? We kind of know. I think people are going to be confident. There's not going to be a massive surge in COVID. You know, like we've seen in the previous waves. That's just not going to happen not with a degree of immunity in the population. But the NHS could be really stretched. And I think that's what, that's the big issue. But it's, of course, it's always stretched every winter, but it could be even worse than normal. And in terms of the longer term, I think, again, there's certain amount is it's not going to go away. I think people are, are fairly clear about that. Um, whether it'll settle down and be kind of like flu um, in terms of uh, both its severity if you catch it and how much is circulating is another matter whether it's just going to add to winter woes um, and so on and how people will respond in terms of you know a lot of people are so very anxious not going out um, will they there's nothing sudden going to happen I don't think that will that will um, say oh we're free you know, it's not Freedom Day, did not mean Freedom Day. So I, I, I think we just don't know. I mean, then you think on an international scale, it's still not clear what's going to happen in uh, Africa and other places with, with low vaccination rates. Um, so far, um, you know, it hasn't hit them as badly as, for example, South America or, or India, but we, we, we don't know. And so, and of course, we don't know, and again, Come on, Mr. Virologist. Are, are any nasty variants coming to come along or is it actually going to get weaker? So there's there's so many unknowns, so many different ways it could turn out. But I think I think we can be confident, at least in this country, we're not going to see a return to um, you know, massive increases, for example, in numbers of deaths. However, we could see enough uh, new cases to threaten... You know, the just just make the NHS close to not functioning, and we could see definitely we could see an, a reintroduction of some measures. Um, they won't close schools. They would it would be um, you know back to working at home because we know that that actually well look really looks like that you know that is an effective way of reducing the number of contacts that people have we know we do know that people who go to work have a lot more co close contacts than people who don't so that's an effective one and um you know more stringent face mask wearing and you know etc more more serious social distancing again come back and it's quite plausible that will happen over the winter and the government has actually blessed them great have said well this is what we want to do plan a but we've got plan b up our sleeve and said what plan b is and i think that again is an enormous enormous sort of um what i call sort of improvement in the trustworthiness of what the government's saying the fact that they acknowledge that we don't know what's going to happen and things may get bad and then this this is what we might do so because otherwise 
I mean, and this is what really I get fed up with the media about is that they so love U-turn. You know, they're pointing their fingers like kids in a playground, U-turn, U-turn. And all that's happened is that, you know, they've changed their minds because things have changed. And by saying right in advance, well, things might change and then we'll do something different. They, if they'd only done that right the way through last year as well, had that maturity and confidence, instead of just saying, you know, we're doing this, we know best, then they might have got away with being seen as a lot more trustworthy. Because when things did change, like Christmas closing down, all those sort of things, they could have said, yeah, well, we warned you this might happen. I mean, Chris Whitty, I think, has been excellent on this sort of stuff. But the, but politicians just don't seem to be able to say, well, we're going to do this, but things might change and then we might do something else. They just don't seem incapable of that sort of maturity. One journalist, when watching one of those press conferences with Boris Johnson flanked by Chris Whitty and another commentator said uh, it was a case of a good cop, sad cop routine because Chris Whitty looked extremely glum at the time. But you're not glum, David Spiegelhalter. Thank you very much for talking to us. David's book written with Anthony Masters is out now and it's called Covid by Numbers. I'm Chris Smith. This is Intelligence Squared and thanks very much for listening. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thank you.